everybody, it's John. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. Let's get the business out of the way first. Find us on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast if you like fun stories about music, and write us a review. Please write us a review. Find us on Facebook. Uh, like our page. We can stay connected that way. Send me a message on Facebook if you want. Send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We're on TuneIn. I think we're on a ton of other things. Find us however you find podcasts. All right, this week we are talking to Todd Duncan, who was the lead singer of an American ska band in the 80s called the Crazy Eights. Well, they started in the 80s. They lasted longer than that. They were on Star Search. Remember that show, Star Search? That's kind of how they, um, that's not how they broke, but that's sort of how they became known nationally. Uh, We talk a little bit about that on here. They were an excellent ska band, which there weren't that many American ska bands at that time. They, They started to come a little bit later in the 90s. Todd and I talk about mainly, I say, kind of the punk aesthetic, sort of of doing things, you know, DIY, not selling out, um, keeping everything in-house. They were a very political band. Uh, I feel like that may have sort of stifled their career a little bit. I think they held a little too firm to those ideals, and it kept them from signing with a major label, playing the game that you got to do to get yourself heard, to a wider audience. Now, that's not for everybody, but the Crazy Eights were a great band. They deserved to be heard by a wider audience. So it's unfortunate that they weren't. But Todd's a good dude, and he tells us all about some of his interactions with famous people and what he does now, which is interesting because he has basically a you know corporate job, and um, what the Crazy Eights do now. He called me from his home in Seattle. Duncan, thank you so much for joining me on the hustle tonight. I uh, wanted to fill you in on how I how I discovered you guys. So, I um, I'm going to be 42 in a couple of weeks. So when you first came out, I don't think I was really keyed into you know alternative or college radio yet. That, I would have been 11 years old. But I remember I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. They uh, they 
there was a pretty uh, solid, really strong alternative, couple of alternative radio stations. And every now and then I would hear this song that I really liked, but it never caught the name of it or the name of the band. And for years this went on. And I would hear it half a dozen times. And uh, one night I'm working in San Francisco. I worked uh, nights. I, w I wrote news copy for, uh, to be read on the radio. And some song came on the radio that reminded me of, your, of this reggae or this ska song that I knew. And I thought, I wonder if I email the radio station I used to listen to in Salt Lake. Would they know what this was? So I did, and I said, I don't know who it is. I don't know what it's called. All I remember is something about Johnny Q Public. That's all I remember. And um, I must have posted it to a message board or something because I was inundated with, oh, that's the Crazy Eights. And uh, from so then I finally had, you know, I was kind of anchored finally in figuring out who these guys were. Cut it to about a year later, I was working for Tower Records in their uh, corporate headquarters in Sacramento. The Burnside distribution rep came through the office. I was in regional marketing. And when he came through, I begged him for a copy of Still Crazy After All These Beers. And uh, he sent me one in the mail. And I loved that thing. And so I, uh, that's basically what, you know, turned me on to the Crazy Eights, and I've been a fan ever since. And I wish that I, you know, were, was old enough to have appreciated it in round one back in the 80s, but at least I discovered it about 10, 12 years ago. The guy from Burnside was uh, uh, Terry Courier, one of the very uh, stalwart, strong men of a retail record business still uh, exists today, Music Millennium, one of our greatest uh, supporters, one of the, the pure music lovers uh, uh, nationwide. Uh, what a really? great guy that guy's. Uh, it's great that you had to write an anonymous letter about Johnny Q Public, which is like kind of an oxymoron in a way. It's, it uh, kind of is, yeah. <laughs> in a, in a, you know, the, 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 the unnamed man, you know. Um, All right. Oh, shucks. And then I was going to say, Tower Records, we ended up getting uh, a nice article in their Lone Wolf Independent mm -hmm. uh, publication uh, that went out Publications. It was called Tower Pulse, and mm -hmm. Tower Records is always a great deal. I wish I could na uh, name the guy. Uh, we actually charted there uh, for a couple of, of records. Um, yeah. You had one more thing in there, Salt Lake. Um, great music town, underrated. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite spots to play. Now, having said all that, I have never had the honor of speaking with anyone who's been on Star Search. So I want you to tell me about Star Search. Star Search is kind of a, a, a kind of a bizarre happenstance. Um, we had just released Law and Order. Pretty well. It, it, Johnny Q, that's how people were introduced. They had a great horn riff, 
great introduction. And we released it independently on Red Room Records in 1984. All of a sudden, it was the most requested track on WLIR in Long Island. I mean, stuff happens. It charted nationwide on uh, CMJ and the Gavin Report. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a huge interest in the band. And it turns out that Star Search was one of the first cattle call talent you know, predated American Idol and The Voice. But before that, there was Amateur Hour by Arthur Godfrey. So it wasn't the original Catacall. We had already done a few decent gigs and had established a reasonable uh, amount of credibility. And Star Search did a open audition in Portland. So um, our tenor player at the time, uh, Joe Johnson Jr., we ought to try this. And there was some reluctance in the band, kind of not what we were about. It wasn't your vibe at all. You guys saw yourself a little, I don't know, a little more, a little edgier than Star Search. Was that too mainstream? Yeah, I guess, I guess that's the point. So we we go to this open audition. We we had to cut Johnny Q, which had already been released and already been uh, number one on uh, well over fifty stations, uh, college stations. And we went into the audition. I said, I really don't want to do this. It's kind of a sellout national program. So what happened was we went in there and we switched um, instruments. And we just goofed around and, like, totally made it a, a comic act. And the guy, like, fell out. And he goes, this is great. This is the best thing since the monkeys. And uh, we actually got accepted. So despite our truest intentions to uh, sabotage yeah. the audition, we actually got selected. which was just like, oh, crap. What do we do now? And then Star Search says, um, I forget the name of the production company. They offer us this contract that said, no, we own the rights to your song throughout Whoa. the universe through, uh, for perpetuity. And uh. I said, no, we've already got a college hit. We don't need yeah. you guys. No, thank you. And lo and behold, at that very same time, the most popular magazine of publication at, in 1984-85 was still TV Guide. Mm. They had latched on to our story for some reason and said, uh, we want to track throughout the, the star search machination. How do you get from A to B? They right, said, sure. sure. And so when we get this contract, they said, well, fine, we'll just tear it up. And I go, well, that'd be great. We had retained a lawyer, a representative, and to make sure we weren't getting messed up on it. And we said, well, that's great. That'll make great copy for TV Guide, that star search browbeats, you know, the tally. And they said, oh, never mind. So they changed the kind of the terms of the deal. We flew we flew down there. I think the word I was looking back for before was reluctant. It was just really reluctant to yeah. join this. It wasn't part of our mission statement to be part sure. of this thing. Anyway, it turned out to be a pretty good deal. They flew us down there. We saw Little Richard in a Cadillac by Tower wow. Records on Sunset. We, I almost ran over Joan Rivers at the comedy store. No way. Uh, there's billboards, there's uh, uh, flashing lights. It was fun. Had you we ever been to L.A. before? Oh, yeah. And, okay. Um, okay. But it was kind of goofy kind of getting a, a, a taste of the, the Hollywood process in the meat grinder, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, yeah. so we get down there. It was a great experience. I mean, we got to be on TV. We learned about all this and that. One of the guest hosts uh, with Ed McMahon was Bob Hope. We also got to meet Milton Berle. 
And it gave me a kind of a perspective of the purpose of entertainers. A couple of funny stories. We all used to shop at thrift stores, indie band. You wanted to keep this sort of hungry image, and we were political spokesmen for the whatever generation we were. They said, well, we need to dry clean all your stuff. And they looked at it, and they this is your these are your clothes, <laughs> you know, and they, and they did makeup and wow. said no, and yeah, um, and they had a runner, which was funny. We had this really great guy, and uh, who was our quote unquote driver, mm. and uh, he said, you know, I'm, basically I'm here to help you guys out. What do you want? And we said, go get us a case of beer or something. So instead of makeup and hair curlers and yeah. whatever, teeth whitener, once we kind of got on pretty much scripted. They were going to let us win because that made good copy for TV Guide. Oh, and, Right, and we beat the quote-unquote eventual champions. The point of music and creativity is there's no winner or loser, either a good yeah. good artist or a bad artist. That measured competitive piece kind of bugged me. You have to remember this is the 80s, early 80s. Sure. As soon as we won, quote-unquote, they brought in this band. I don't mean to be disrespectful or uh, mm-hmm. judgmental, but they brought in this band that really wasn't quite that good. They were a bad version of Air Supply. This guy, they gave him three tries to get their their songs together. And really? Lo and behold, evaluated at a lesser standard. Our yeah. adventure with Star Church was over, but it was great. I mean, we had published our tones. We made a couple good checks. It was good, and we did okay. It's funny. I remember watching that show a ton when I was a kid. In fact, I've been rewatching your performance on there, and, I, and it looks very familiar. I mean, I was only a kid, but so I have a couple of questions. The band, it sounds like, is as you said, reluctant to sort of go this direction in terms of promotion. Was it your manager that thought being on Star Search or trying out for it would be a really good deal? It was our, our tenor player, Joe Johnson Jr. He was the tenor player on our first record. His brother played in the NBA. He was a big college yeah. star in Oregon State. We actually borrowed money from him to make our first record. The story's about how much we actually borrowed vary according to which Wikipedia edit mm-hmm. you look at. But yeah. you know, he helped he helped us get our start. I like Joe a lot. He had a nice crafty way of looking at stuff. It just didn't work out. You know, there was mm-hmm. a direction that a couple of guys wanted to go and he had a vision that really didn't sync with us. But we acquiesced to his thinking that this was a good idea. And like yeah. I said, we went in to try to sabotage it. Despite our best intentions we actually got accepted. See Portland is a weird town. I live in Seattle now, and Seattle was always kind of a hype town. Portland was a wait-and-see town. We actually were doing really great things on college radio as an independent record company, waking up early and calling program managers and music directors and crossing over to a couple of commercial stations. That's too hard to explain Yeah. Yeah. at the time. And right. so being on a TV show was a big deal. At that point in our career, which was, I think, 85, maybe 84, we had already proven ourselves. We were already blazing yeah. our own little independent trail. Yeah. I wondered about that. If they were bringing on rookies, so to speak, nowadays they're everywhere, but they're all supposedly amateurs coming in and landing that big deal. But you guys already had an album out that was doing okay in the college radio realm and selling okay in the Northwest. Uh, Limited Warranty was the name of the band that you beat that night, at least according to YouTube. It's just a late reaction It's just a feeling lost When are you invitation It's easy to forget the cost 
Were they a signed band with an album too, or were they amateurs? What was the what was the angle on that show? Were you trying? Well, were they plucking people out of obscurity and giving them stardom, or were you just kind of launching your career to the next level? No, it was more like limited warranty. They were a band out in the Midwest. I think either Minneapolis or Iowa. The deal with that, it was an opportunity. Some people thought that that road. Uh -huh. for their type of music. Limited Warranty was kind of a Duran Duran, you know, big hair, oh, spandex. I mean, that was a great opportunity. You know, Starfish is a great opportunity for comedians and actors and guys that are more mainstream. My vision when we started the band was to be lyrically credible sure. and explore the skill set our musicians had. So for Limited Warranty, it was a great deal. They actually went on to win the whole thing, you know, which is yeah, funny. But who's ever heard of them? You know, I wonder what I should go track them down. I wonder what their well, story is. You could. I mean, and, you know, with all due respect, anybody who actually picks up an instrument, anybody's ever had the guts to write a song, and anybody's mm -hmm. ever had the gumption or wherewithal to actually perform it and get a band to work it out and to play it once in front mm -hmm. of a paying audience. Yeah. Or, or any audience, to me, deserves the highest praise. And it's funny. I mean, that takes a lot of guts. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I have nothing really uh, disparaging to say about anybody who actually tried. Sure, sure. But for them, that was a valid path mm -hmm. to find what they were looking for as sure. artists and musicians. So for us, or for me personally, I guess, it wasn't. And what? we did it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people remember us for it. There was a lot of good memories. Party at the Sunset Hyatt was great afterwards. Um, <laughs> right on. Well, look, I was going to bring this up later, but you mentioned it. Now, Steve Johnson was the name of the NBA player that sort of staked you guys, right? Right. Um, how does, I mean, that's crazy. So his brother Joe was in your band. Joe goes to Steve and says, you know, will you stake us? And whatever the final number was or whatever. I'm curious, in 1983 or 4, whatever year this was, did that happen? What did you, what did that money mean to you? Was there, what kind of cachet came with having an NBA player sort of being the guy that, you know, bankrolls the beginning of Crazy Eights? Well, at that point in time, we had actually established ourselves as an incredible club presence in some decent clubs. Louis LeBavis and the Portland opening up for Billy Rancher, who actually was signed to Arista Records by Clive Davis. within weeks, months, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. No um, and uh, one of the great pioneers of new music, alternative image, uh, the fact that you could be hip in Portland. You didn't have to mm -hmm. play bad company covers. Yeah. Um, and so we had the good fortune of opening up for him a lot. We actually had a couple sax players prior to Joe. Hmm. You know, you know, 
when you're young and you're out of college and you're looking at, for your way to your next step in life, a couple of our tenor players went one way, the other way, joined the Air Force, got oh. decent jobs. And we were still naive enough to think that, you know, this is a reasonable attempt at a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we met Joe uh, through our drummer, Rick Washington, at the time. I'm not quite sure. He came in, started, uh, we started gigging. Uh, at that time, we had played, we opened up for The Clash. We yeah. played a gig with Romeo Boyd. We did a gig with uh, English Beat. We were sort of awkwardly tagged as a two-tone band when mm. we did a little bit more than ska and reggae. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just really clicked with the college towns and University of Oregon, of Oregon State. Yeah. And um, so all of a sudden we had a resume. So, well, we ought to, you know, put out a record. So instead of just waiting for somebody to, quote, unquote, discover us or, you know, which is kind of the trend of a lot yeah. of musicians – um, we were college educated. We just said, okay, how do you make a record? Make a phone call. Talk to a guy. Find out the expense. It's what it costs. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of plowed our way through it. When I met Mark Baker through KBVR Radio in Corvallis, he had produced some shows, and he was a natural fit. We invited him to be the manager. So between where I was a DJ, so between the two of us, we sort of just plowed our way yeah. into making a record. And Well, you need money, and... Uh, Joe's brother was, at that point, uh, I think a number one or two draft pick, played with mm-hmm. the Kansas City Kings. They turned out to be the Sacramento Kings. Right. Uh, had a short stint there. To put out vinyl right. at that point was actually pretty affordable. Lent us a little money, and we just went to the studio with uh, Marlon McClain from the Daz Band. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, we, what we did is we just sort of we validated our effort by finding the guys around town that were accessible, open-minded, and had already cut their chops in the music business. So we had Marlon McClain, uh, played with Pleasure, and uh, a Daz Band. And is, um, is he local? You just call him up and say, we're a local band, and oh, yeah. uh, would you be interested in producing us? You have to remember, Colton's yes. not wasn't as eclectic as it is now. It's okay. Yeah, it wasn't very hip. Yeah, <laughs> but there was an undercurrent and a a culture of, of really hardworking musicians. That's amazing. And, uh, now let me ask you this: I mean, the Dad's band is a killer R and D band. have a list of names and you chose him or were you calling like anybody you could find that you knew had experience in the music industry and seeing if they would produce you no actually he had he had a track record of producing i forget who it was at okay off the top of my, but 
we said, no, this guy's cool. He's a good musician. Yeah. Um, he's already done one record, which drew us to him. We called him. We reached out, uh, talked to him. He said, yeah, I'll sure I'll do it. Um, we also um, reached out um, the guy who did the album cover, our first record, uh, Law & Order, yeah. uh, Jack Oman, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist who li- worked for the Oregonian. And now he's nationally syndicated. I think he works right. out of a different city. But he's the one that put together the great graphic, which also helped uh, Ronald sure. Reagan with nuclear missiles, uh, as yeah. Gary Cooper, you know. Did, uh, having, did having Jack do your album art, did that bring some kind of bona fides to the, to the band that uh, kind of got you out there a little bit more? Well, absolutely. I mean... You want to surround yourself with guys that are credible. Um, and, I mean, it wasn't like we were uncalculated. Again, I'm, I'm going to mention that. In fact, that Mark Baker and me, and we were tied into how college radio worked. We we had seen how bands worked their way through. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the Violent Femmes um, yeah. was – number one in Corvallis for like literally 40 weeks. We played with them. So you establish these kind of rootsy musical intentions, but experience came out of our awareness of how it worked. We were aware of the Gavin Report. We knew people at CMJ, David Margley. We knew the trades. We understood uh, what it took. And so it wasn't like we went blind. We had, um, I would say, at best, a eclectic business plan. Yeah. And you guys put the album out independently, your own label. You were saying earlier, rather than sit back and hope to be discovered, you just DIY'd it and did it yourself. Did the did the major labels ever come knocking? And if they did, did you choose to turn them down and remain on your own label? And did you ever put out anything else on Red Rum Records besides Crazy Apes? Was this like a business or was it just a means to sort of get your albums distributed? A, we created the record to just get our stuff out and sure. played. Um, you have to also understand that college radio is not commercial, so we didn't make a lot of money because there's no royalties there. It's just an awkward timing thing because the songs that we put out there and uh, the subsequent records that we released always did pretty well on college radio. We were heavily into working that angle. So we sort of learned about trademarks, copyrights, publishing rights, how to make a product. The funny part is we would get these questions like, how did you do that? Well, we said, well, we made a couple phone calls, put some money in a jar, basically. Yeah. Crazy 8 started with seven bucks. Then we had enough to open a bank account. Then we just sort of talked away some stuff. We had some help from Steve Johnson. Fortunately, Johnny Q, just really um, catchy tone that that helped us, helped us out. We toured relentlessly. We had a hard work ethic. We we didn't have opening bands. We could play three sets of original material. We left it on the stage. Being independent was also a, a kind of a obstacle when you started to talk to major labels because they like to talk to people that really don't know what they're doing and they're, mm. they're oh this is so our big race. We've been we've yeah. been discovered. We were scouted by Atlantic Records. They yeah. were interested in a singles deal off our second record, Nervous and Suburbia. We had some top 40 airplay, some crossover AOR, album-oriented radio, Z100 played it. Giving your own time. 
I mean, I, I'm not 
trying to. Well, I absolutely do think that those or anything, songs. But I think Johnny Q could have been one of those standards too, don't you? Well, absolutely, and it was on a more grassroots level. Sure, and, sure, it was, yeah. And at this stage in my life, I'm as proud as can be. I mean, sure, I I enjoy acknowledging what we did right. One of the things that I think went wrong with our going up to the next level was that we were as good a Triple A prospect as could be. We had proven ourselves on the road. We had gathered great crowds. We had independently manufactured original music. We had artistic respect, critical acclaim mm-hmm. uh, through Rolling Stone and other yeah. various stuff. We should have at that time, Greg Lee said, well, why don't you let me produce it? He's a very successful man, driven, got new shoes, their deal. band out poorly had I Can't sure. Wait. Yeah, um, I remember them well. Right, and then the only other band really that kind of made it was Quarter Flash at that time. Johnny Coots got into Rolling Stone. There was a lot of great independent groups, Greg Sage. Yeah. We sort of overthought the demo, and I guess the more cooks you get, the worse the product got. Everybody saw opportunity, um, and it, it became very a diluted product, which is too bad because those are some of our greatest songs we wrote. Are you talking about and the Out of the Way album? Correct, 1987. Yeah. I guess, if you know, I think if I ever had like a, one of those moments like I would have, could have, should have, would have done it over, I just said, Greg, go ahead and produce it. And hmm. who knows what would happen. It could have greased the wheel that got us to where we needed to go. The other question would be, if we got to where we wanted to go, would that have been the best thing? Who knows? At this point, yeah. and, and I think sounds that kind that, of like you guys overthought a lot. I mean, I'm not trying so, to say you did the wrong thing, but analysis paralysis, you know, a little bit. Do you think? Well, yeah, especially with that that issue. I mean, we were as organic and authentic as it got. I mean, right. the way we wrote the the way we wrote tones, the way that the songs developed, very Grateful Dead like every song morphed, matured via live performances. We were an awkward band in the studio, and especially that that one great opportunity, which would have been demo deal with Warner, was probably our best shot. I got to put in a plug. Uh, Out of the way, while not your best, those first two albums are pretty perfect. Um, Out of the way does have probably my favorite Crazy Eight song, which is Courage and Conviction.
um, I was, I'm happy at least that that was burst from this chaotic time. Did anything else come out on Red Rum Records? The answer would be no. It was we were basically creating a clearinghouse for our own stuff. But the funny okay. part about that story is when we went to L.A. a couple times, we had to play at the Music Machine and Coconut Teaser, the, the Club Lingerie. Um, L.A. is a hard town, man. And mm-hmm. we got two letters. One was from the guy uh, in Sublime. Oh, he said Brad Noel, lead singer. Yeah, we have a letter from that guy. He said, "Can we be on your label, please?" Oh, and nice. The other one was from uh, Gwen Stefani. Of course. And and I still have an original, no doubt, like when they were a club band uh-huh. shirt. And uh, it was so beautiful because we got this little press package and a photo. Mm-hmm. And God, you guys are great, but we're barely paying the bills. Yeah. <laughs> this as it is. And, you know. And so those are that's some funny stuff. Um, cool. We've always been approached uh, mainly for advice. And, yeah. You know, and once the independent formula kind of came out, a lot of people just figured, wow, it's really not that hard. Do but you know how many great. units those first two albums sold? Oh. Looks like Law and Order was about twenty five thousand. I would say 20, right? twenty to twenty five thousand is probably a, okay. a decent estimate. Uh, I know we went for multiple pressings. We were just blown away that the first two thousand were gone, or sure. considering we gave away a thousand. But <laughs> yeah, we actually, right. We did well. We expanded cassettes. I think our first CD was our live record in '88. We were caught in this weird time warp as well, as the world grows and the music industry changes. And there's multiple formats out there at that time, and. Uh, it yeah, costs money for you guys to get it all out there on all of them, right? Yeah, and one of my most proud about is that as an independent record company, Crazy Ace, Red Run Records, Mark Baker, we were able to pay all our bills. We paid the That's manufacturers. Great. We paid our crew guys. We nice. paid our gas money. We paid for everything. That's actually kind of rare. Yeah, and yeah. Were you guys holding down regular jobs at this time, or are you just the band 24-7, just not getting rich off the band? We didn't get rich, but we did quite well for independent, full-time musicians without day gigs. Once Law & Order came out, that's all we did. Um, Okay, good. Uh, and that lasted until, what, about 93 or so? That was about a 13-year run. Well, yeah. Maybe a 10-year run, but okay. you know, along the way, you do stuff. I mean, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I was a stripper, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, dude. Old dancer, baby. No, 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 I'm, I'm fine. Um, <laughs> That's great. Everybody kind of semi-augmented their uh, income, but, you know, okay. and as, as guys got older, one guy would get married, and the other mm-hmm. guy... Like Casey, our original, Casey Shaw, our original keyboard player, he's brilliant engineer out of Oregon State. Three records, and just mm-hmm. kind of had to say, i got to move on. And yeah. so we would attrition guys out, not really with any malice. I, I think there was maybe one or two malice moments. Okay, okay. But, uh, and you're still uh, drawing. I imagine you're able to play live anywhere you want in the area, right? Record living off record sales might be different, but do you have like a following? 
Well, we never really quite lived on record sales, but we just paid for the next adventure, you know. Okay. And that was good for us. We, we were, in my opinion, nostalgic and romantic because I want to remember it. We were able just to put more stuff out there. and sure. uh, You know, four records at that time. I mean, that's a that's a dream. That's a, mm-hmm. I mean, we were able to put out product and it was still right. accepted. But today, you know, we play occasionally. We all have kind of moved our different ways. I'm very comfortable acknowledging what I did right and wrong as far as, and I like sharing what I did. I, it's, it's just really, I'm just glad you reached out. Good. I'm glad, man. Yeah. Well, the whole I mean, point I, of this I hope you, is to turn people on to bands I love. Well, give good. them more attention, you know? Well, and it's honest, too, um, which I think is one of our crazy, it's most brutal and uh, unaffected <laughs> traits is that we were brutally honest. We mm. we were clumsily uh, and outspoken, subtle as a flying mallet, I think somebody yeah. wrote. Do you have really, any glaring regrets of that period? I mean, we've mentioned some things here, but you sound like you're at peace with them. But is there something you would have done different? Well, I think th- I was still lo- I was thinking about that, and it's really hard to capsulize like your regrets. You look at them as like mm-hmm. a person, as a dad, as a husband, as a person, a, a contributor to the whole human experience. And I actually have, I think. Business-wise, the regret that I had is that we didn't really, we weren't quick to understand that letting Greg Lee produce that demo might have helped us out a lot. Yeah. Like, but like I mentioned before, that might have been, you know, who knows what would have happened to me if I had to become uh, very successful. I, I'm not quite sure I want to even. Yeah. Ponder that question. I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm. You're comfortable where you're at. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, Good. I've had a, a very charmed life, and Good. Um, I've had the chance to play with some of the most stalwart alternative pioneers, yeah, Chili yeah. Peppers, The Clash, um, English Beat, Violent Femmes, uh, Oingo Boingo. I mean, I could tell you stories for days. Just uh, great interfaces with some great people. Well, tell me a couple of the highlights. I, by the way, I have like four or five kind of major questions I want to get to at some point, but I this was one of them. So do you have like highlights of your experience with, did you ever talk to Joe Strummer? Did you talk to Dave Wakeling? Did you get beers with Gordon Gano? I mean, what were the, you know, what did you, what are the stories? Oh, my gosh. How many hours do you have? <laughs> Jeez, maybe we've got to put this in two parts. Well, the goofy part is that, in a way, there was a lot of bands like us that had really great experience, but I don't think there were a lot of independent bands of that time that had their own record company that just put out a ton of original, well, not a ton, that's a stupid thing to say. We we were reasonably prolific, uh, Mm -hmm. and at that time, uh, we were aggressive, We we were hard workers. God, you want me to encapsulate all that stuff? What's the first, What are the first stories that you don't mind sharing that come to mind? Uh, if nothing else, what are the? What? How are you internalizing this? I'm assuming these bands are are heroes of yours. 
when you find oh, out I, that you're opening for the clash, yeah. what's your day like? You know? Yeah. Do you do your feet even touch the ground? Well, I will say this. Well the funny part is even before when I was driving over here I heard uh I'm lost in a supermarket uh-huh. and no longer shop happily. Came in for a special offer, guaranteed personality. One of yeah. my favorite class tunes. The goofy part is that right when I was in college, the whole alt new wave came over. The Sex Pistols, Elvis Costello, um, Graham Parker, The Jam, uh, The Clash. I mean, yeah. Talking Heads, Blondie. Yeah. I mean, those are big yeah. game changers. Uh, we came out of the age of Spanx pants, big hair, and disco. And stadium rock, and that was a big blow up for like people of our age, twenty four, twenty three, sure. And specials. The day I graduated from college, I turned in my last paper. I got the word from my professor that yes, you're going to get your certificate after X amount of years. Uh-huh. I was on a twenty year program. Very same day, um, I opened up for the Clash at Mac Court on their remote control tour. No, it was out of control. Out of control. Um, okay. Uh, Joe Strummer was my hero. loved about music. You didn't get an unhonest Joe Strummer from my perspective at the time. We got to play. We were supposed to do a I think a 90 minute set maybe an hour, 70 minute set. We did it. We were so excited we did it in 45 minutes. <laughs> and we, we basically right. played the set over again. And yeah. we had a chance to interface with Joe and I gave him a book called uh, Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, Vamp the Clock. Um, he's playing with, uh, I want to say the Muscateros. I can't remember. I always screw that up. Muscateros, yeah. Yeah, he's playing a gig at the Showbox in Seattle, and I, I beg my wife. She goes, why are you so upset? I go, I really want to see Joe Strummer. She says, okay, if you stop pouting, you can go. And I go, <laughs> and I take this picture that I had taken with Joe back in 1984 wow. and watch the show they play some new stuff they play some clash hits 
I go back and um, I said, hey, Joe, my name's Todd Crazy Eights. He goes, oh, yeah, ska band out of Portland. And I just go, no what? Way. What? And I go, wow. I, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, lead him into the comment. It just felt sure. good to be acknowledged. Totally. Uh, it was super great. And what happened was, uh, I go, well, I've got this great picture of, of us in 1984. Um, I'd love to take a picture with you now and let's study the picture for like five, ten seconds. And he was totally game with it and it was great sport. And so we took the same exact pose, same facial expressions. And um, unfortunately, like I would say less than a month, two at the most, he had passed. Oh, man. And so I, I saw him on that last tour too, but it was about a year before he died. I saw him at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and so oh. I had a chance to be kind of, I guess, acknowledged or um, uh, the stamp of approval of memory, sure. uh, just to be uh, uh, all of that. That was one of my yeah. favorite memories was meeting Joe. I would Joe. imagine. And that's one of, I mean, that's closure for you, right? I mean, doesn't I, I'll be honest with you. That's one of the reasons why I started this podcast too. Is that. Um, and I recorded a, an introduction to it that you could hear. It's like seven minutes long. But basically, when my when your rock heroes start to pass away, and especially one of which, one of mine was, um, I loved Big Country. Remember that band, Big Country? Yeah, we played with those guys in DC, Washington, D.C. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, man. You and I need to sit down and chat in greater detail one of these times, Todd. Well, when Stuart Adamson killed himself and you think about your like credit house is my all-time favorite band and their drummer paul hester kills himself and you think when the people you love kill themselves do they do it because they don't feel like they're loved because you love them a lot you probably love them enough to have gotten through them through that day or at least it feels like it you know what i mean and so if there's a way to communicate that that affection to the people that you love and respect would you want to do that and that's kind of what is not saying that you're going to die, but that's one of the motivators for this thing, right? Is you want people to know that they did something that matters. And that's why I reach out to the crazy eights. They do something that matters to me. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Every day, it's funny. Um, there are days where you go, you know, I put a lot of heart and soul into uh, uh, a concept, an idea, a place, uh, an expression. Um, the goofy part about artists is they're always eclectic. They're always a little wonky. Um, they're internally disturbed <laughs> for huh. the most part. Right. But they got something. They want to be heard. They want to. They want to be acknowledged. Um, we used to say, all artists, even though they deny it, want to be rich and famous. I've always felt pretty comfortable about how, what we meant. I mean, good. I mean. Over four or five records, four original products, a live record, subsequent anthologies and re-releases, consistently getting people reaching out and, and remembering. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I had my first beer at your show, which I really mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. That's one of my proudest mm -hmm. moments. But, but at the same time, you'll hear, I met my sure. wife at one of your concerts. Yeah. It means something, yeah. And so you're part of that kind of intangible emotional food yeah. chain that that people carry with them, and yeah. I'm okay, I'm totally okay with that. I'm sure you should be. I'm very 
proud privilege, proud of it. And uh, I think just being on the road with the guys and and getting a chance to taste America from the ground up and interfacing with really decent, uh, like-minded people, either fans, music lovers, club owners, promoters. I just think that feeling... I would have been okay to play one song. I'm just going to relate it to this one story. I, I love the Beatles. I love okay. Jimi Hendrix. I loved the idea of being a musician. All the guys in our band met through jazz band at Oregon State or whatever. If I had one chance to sing one song in front of a live audience one time in my life, I would have been happy. So I answered an ad in the Oregon State paper and said lead singer wanted and i learned Mm -hmm. i think happy birthday uh Mm -hmm. the beatles i learned um, helter skelter and maybe my sharona for three songs for a mere 15 minutes yeah i was as happy a guy i got to sing in front of a band and i felt good and it was a great moment you're able to put out records and create your own bliss Follow your thing, uh, a.k.a. Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. and just do what you want and speak about love and politics. And you said courage and conviction, how to call people out in a way, editorialize on your life. Yeah, yeah. Create, create lasting testaments to the time you lived in as it was lived. What a, a, a treat and a pleasure. I mean, yeah, that's huge. Uh, any artist just wants to leave something behind that matters, right? Well, I kind of hope I, I did, and I kind of I'm at peace with it. I mean, like, well, for example, I referee basketball games um, mm. um, for fun and exercise, mm-hmm. and I like basketball. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, talked to this guy, and he said, "I said, well, you know, I can't really hear when they call timeouts because I'm a little hard of hearing in one ear." <laughs> I said, well, why is that? And I go, well, I played in this band for a long time in the 80s and 90s. He goes, really, what band? And I said, oh, Crazy Eights. A referee almost screamed like a cheerleader. Really? And started singing Johnny Q and, and saying, I saw you here, I saw you there, and this and that. And those kind of happenstance moments yeah. are, are, are great. And, and I'm sure they happen to all the rest of the guys, too. And You get to tell awesome. that story, too. That's... that's uh... That's big. So there's a couple things that I want to make sure I cover, right? Okay. I want to know, one, how you make your living now. And secondly, I want to know, so there's two other things. One, I want to know who your contemporaries were. Because, you know, I've been been listening, I've always thought, you know, obviously ska influences around your time was the second wave. It was the specials, madness, English beat, selector. But I couldn't think of any other real... American ska bands. I mean, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Mustard Plug, those guys came along later. Did you have contemporaries in the ska world that were doing what you were doing and kind of inspiring you along the way? Now, let me let me table that for a second. Today, while I'm at work, I'm listening to your older albums. I think it was Dogopotamus. And um, then I go on my lunch hour. And while I'm on my lunch hour and I'm eating and I'm reading a book, I decide I'm going to listen to Oingo Boingo. And it hits me all of a sudden that not only do you two sound like contemporaries, but your voice even sounds a lot like Danny Elfman's voice. 
and yeah. you mentioned them earlier, playing with them. So where are you getting inspiration from to do what you're doing? Is it the British ska wave, or is there something happening in America? So back in the day, I mean, we were considered a two-tone band, a ska band, because we had black guys and white guys, but we really weren't about that. We, we had funk influences, we had Tower of Power, we had jazz influences, we had uh, old-school rock influences, and so it was really hard to pigeonhole us into reggae slash ska, uh, we opened up for the Beat, the Femmes, uh, the Clash, um, and Romeo Void early on. I always still saw us as more of an uh, alternative new music expression. If you look at uh, American alter, uh, contemporaries, I would say maybe the Untouchables out of L.A. Yeah, Bob okay. Harvey, Let's Go Bowling, Easy Big Fella, I think was the Northwest Band. Uh, there's a Portland group called the Confidentials. So we sort of embraced a lot of those bands. We had the pleasure to really strike up a great relationship with the Neville Brothers. Oh, wow. And we did okay. maybe, we, we maybe did, I would say, at least 10 shows with those guys up and down the coast. I'll never forget the first time we played all the Aaron, Art, Cyril, and uh, Charlie were sitting there watching us from the side. And I thought, oh, my God, we're in trouble. We went too long. We're doing – and they came off, and they, all they had was high praise. Wow. And after the show, Aaron Neville comes up to me and says, Todd, I want to talk to you. He's a big guy, you know, mm -hmm. with a scar on his face and – yeah. The most beautiful angelic voice of all time. Tell it like mm -hmm. it is, and just a great falsetto. And I go, "What's up?" Um, and he goes, "I want to give something to you." And he reaches into his wallet and gives me a Mardi Gras doubloon, a printed, worthless piece of uh, metal. Wow! And I go, I look at the the doubloon, and I go, "It's dated 11 years prior to our this moment." I go, I can't take this from you. Um, it's been in your wallet for 11 years. I, I can't take it. And he goes, clearly it means something very great to you. And he goes, yes, it does. But I want to tell you that you are the most soulful guy, uh, singer I've ever seen. And, oh, and I went, what? And I go, no, not like Al Green or Luther Vandross yeah. or Stevie Wonder or anybody like that, or Mar Marvin Gaye. And, and he goes, no, you said you leave Everything on the stage. You, nice. it's been a long time since I've seen a guy give that much to the audience, and you've inspired me. So he gave me this doubloon, which I still keep in my tape deposit box. And Incredible. that was a highlight for me. Um, sure. The moment I met uh, Tyrone Downey from Toots and the Maytals, one of the original wow. whalers. Yeah. Uh, one, the time I got to sit in with uh, Alejandro Escovito, all the time I got a chance to sit in 
with uh, Los Lobos with Bonnie Raitt singing. Um, oh my God! And playing a Hendrix tune. Um, the time we went to Chicago, and we were at the Kingston Mines, and we played with Sun Seals, and in the audience was Bill Kreutzmann, Mickey oh. Hart, uh, wow. Phil Lesh. Uh, the time at the uh, in Oakland, uh, we came out and did this sort of. We marched through the crowd and did a sort of a New Orleans style parade into onto the stage, and Bob Weir was there. I mean. Those That's are the crazy. things when you talk about yeah. precious moments. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I would have never gotten a chance to witness any of those things had I not taken a risk. Sure. Started a, a kooky band. Now you ask me that's what crazy. I do today. I'm a right now a, a post band. I've been a, a network provider of computer products, the computer sales end. I was a public school teacher. I got my math, uh, I was a eighth grade math teacher at a Title One school in one of the most challenged neighborhoods in Seattle for about four years. I've mentored foster children. I've tested hardware and software. I currently am uh, working, bringing standardized testing to a more ethical place. Now, how many shows a year does Crazy Eight do Crazy Eights play? We've done subsequent reunions, and they've gone well, which coincide with an anniversary or a, mm-hmm. a, a sort of a, a anniversary release of Law & Order or our live record. But recently, we've tried to just kind of bring it more grassrootsy. We're doing uh, much smaller club shows because we like them. Mm-hmm. They feel okay. like the old days. Uh, we still sell out. Two, three hundred, four hundred T places, um, nice. but we don't. We just do everything via social media. Yeah, um, it's more. Do you of stick a, mostly local too. I mean, are you mostly playing in the Portland, Seattle area? Oh, absolutely. We haven't. Yeah. Um, I'm the only guy up in Seattle. Um, the rest of the guys stay down Portland. There's a couple school teachers, music teachers, um, and again, you're you're trying to coordinate many schedules with children's requirements. And, um, everybody's doing pretty well. Sure. Okay. Subsequently, we've we thought eight eight oh eight would be a good day to get back. We drew about uh-huh. nine thousand people at the Portland Bite. Um, nice. And then after that, we've sort of tried to do one or two shows. We, we usually do August eighth, the day of the eighth, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, we recently did a gig with Sir Mix a Lot, new shoes, kind of an eighties throwback at the Rose Zone. We did about four thousand. So we still get a lot of activity and interest in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, we just pick and choose. We, I think what we've chose to do is grow old graciously and not try to be young rock stars and mm-hmm. hold on to our past. Um, we're also currently writing a couple of new songs. Really? Is, so there might be a yeah. new album in the works. Yes. And Great. so we're, I think that, that we're trying to kind of mark time in a way that's, um, I don't know, honest. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Man, it yeah. sounds like you. I mean, you've been a you've been a man and a band with um, with ideals, you know, from the beginning. It sounds like, uh, and they've well, been the driving force behind so many decisions, and you know, the mission of the band. I always wanted to be 
an artist that had something to say that was relevant. And because I admired people like Springsteen and Dylan, uh, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, uh, Joe Strummer. And I wanted to be entertaining like guys like Jagger and Bob Geldof from the Boot on Rats and Ray Davies. I wanted to have a sense of humor. Um, I wanted to be a tight band like Tower of Power and some of the jazz groups I loved, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I also wanted to put on long shows and be prolific like guys like Prince and Elvis Costello and Neil Young and uh, The Dead. Um, and I liked the spirit of improvisation. Um, all of those ideals kind of sunk into the way I channeled stuff. We figured that if we were going to have an opinion about politics or the the issues of our time, that we should back it up. One of my proudest pieces is that we did probably six, eight, ten benefit shows to raise money or awareness to certain uh, causes or ideals uh, along the way. Did a rally for Bill Clinton, regardless of whether you're on the left or right side of the aisle, or watching a, a hopeful and up-and-coming intelligent person from governorship to really uh, captivate a country and, and be part of that. He sat in with us. We had a chance to speak. Wow. Um, uh, those kind of things are, are pretty cool. I mean, yeah. It makes yeah. me feel less irre- irrelevant. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I do think that the ideals were a big part of our group. And, and uh... yeah. Oh, you were asking about uh, Oingo Boingo. Oh, yeah. I mean, great story. We played at the Holt Center. We we did this at the beach from our Out of the Way record. And it's very Oingo boingo West. Showbiz slash operatic, you know, barrel-chested you do. tenor, right? Your voice is a powerful tool, man. We played a very inspired sound check, and Danny Elfman runs right up to me, grabs me by, like, really the like, collar of both sides of the collar, shakes me, and goes, you have a great voice, <laughs> and, just, and then scampers away, never to be seen the entire evening. And it was like, wow, well, that was pretty intense. <laughs> That's your one and of, only interaction with Danny Elfman? No, nope. we had another one. Oh, uh, okay. So we're downstairs, 
And we're saying, man, we have a six-pack of Bud and a couple of grapes. We look at their uh, deli setup, and man, we're hungry. So I said, Danny, he was our Danny Shopler, sax player, incredible guy, musician, and uh-huh, uh-huh. person. I go, Danny, go steal one of their pies. They got like six pies. Go take one of those pies. I'll never miss it. We need one. I want to eat some pie. Uh-huh. Right? And I go, it was so we, we just started feeling mischievous and uh-huh. just having a good time. He goes in there like a cartoon from a, a Looney Tunes, tiptoeing back. All of a sudden, Danny Elfman appears out of nowhere, caught red-handed. And he looks at Danny and goes, looks like you got yourself a pie. <laughs> and then just, again, disappears down the, the hall. No way. Yeah, we just laughed and laughed. And, uh, super fun. We did a showcase for CMJ, who is one of our mm. great supporters. Dave Margulies put us on a bunch of records, uh, compilations. They used to call them Certain Damage. Must have been off five or six. Um, and after the show, there's this guy with a peroxide blonde with a classic skinny dude, tight jeans with cool pointy boots and a leather mm-hmm. jacket with a bolo. And I go, what's up, man? He goes, with a thick English accent. He goes, you guys are one of the greatest things I've ever seen, man. It was great. Tell and me I this go, is Billy Idol. No, it was Billy Bragg. It might have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline But on the Chaguavara Highway filling up with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment. So he walks over and he's trying to sympathize with her. But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell. Billy Bragg? Yeah. Wow. So from a kind of a leftist political bent... Yeah, that guy would be a a soul brother to you, I would think. Yeah, and, you know, we were waxing, you know, political that night, but um, just really, just a great, stuff like that is the fun stuff. Um, We were were a unique piece of the independent American music scene in the 80s and 90s. We, We were very fortunate to be moderately clever, blessed with some amount of musical talent to be accepted by such a wide range of people from punks to rockers to hippies to across all sorts of cultural and ethnic groups. And we were just really lucky. Thank you very kindly. Thanks for coming tonight. We all appreciate you all helping us out tonight.
right, there you go, Todd Duncan of the Crazy Eights. You know, one thing that uh, really struck me is that if you think about it, he was probably as equally influenced by The Clash as he was The Grateful Dead, which you would never guess. I mean, to call them just a ska band is kind of limiting. I mean, their sound, if you're listening to the music that's playing right now, it gets pretty heavy, it gets pretty lively. We talked about, ironically, their comparisons to Oingo Boingo, which is interesting because last week's episode was with Johnny Vatos of Oingo, Oingo Boingo. So they're all over the map, but uh, you just wouldn't have guessed that that would have fed um, their creativity. Anyway, next week we are talking to Bertie Higgins, who, if you know that name, he is the performer of one of the greatest yacht rock songs of all time, Key Largo. Still an excellent track. And believe it or not, he is still huge in Asia. So we talk about that. We talk about the ups and downs of his career and uh, how he keeps it together now. Big thanks to Aaron Syrett for producing this podcast and everything else. We'll talk to you all later. (laughs) 